This is Genre Talk. This is Genre Talk. This is Genre Talk. This is Genre Talk with hosts Brian Thomas Schmidt and Peter J. Wax and special guest, Kwai Cordy. I used to like to draw as well, so I'd try and design the jacket covers, staple everything together, and there you were. I had a book. Uh, I was ahead of my time because, of course, now they call that self-publishing. Now, here are Brian Thomas Schmidt and Peter J. Wax. All right, we are going into episode 113, which is actually episode 13 of season one. And no, our 113. We're excited. We're oh, that's man, right. You, you you really had me pumped there for a second, and then I realized we have a a lot more work to do. <laughs> well, what I was going to say is, hi Peter, hi audience. Are you excited about that? But you kind of stole my I moment. I stole Peter. your thunder. I stole your thunder. This is a you rare moment in and of itself, right? <laughs> so, screw you, Peter. Hi audience. <laughs> hi audience. What's up? This is the kind of show we're going to have this week. No, no, no. Yeah. This is a great. This is a great show because this week we did a show with a guy who is from Ghana, and he is now practicing long-term wound care as a physician, a medical doctor, in Los Angeles. But he is what heck of a talented guy, and also is a mystery writer. There's a long tradition of doctors being mystery writers. And um, Quay Corti is uh, continuing that tradition. He started out with the Darko Dawson series with Wife of the Gods. The latest book is Death by His Grace. There's three or four books in between. He's written a few other books as well. Uh, I think he's got one coming up called Dead American, uh, which is a standalone, which is a spinoff PI series, uh, also set in Ghana. Um, and he's done a bunch yeah. of different stuff, and and it was a fun interview, which I pretty much yeah, took over yeah, because I know well, I know God. You have the connection, yeah, yeah. You know God yeah. because you spent so much time there, and uh, uh, you know I, it was as as fun for me to sit and listen as it would have been for me to to start jumping in just because you guys did have that connection on Ghana. So, you know, well, I yeah, and I had read all his books and all that. So, yeah. So, so yeah, if you don't yeah. hear from Peter, it's okay because we've got some guests <laughs> coming up where Peter is going to be a lot more, uh, take more of a lead. You keep trying guy. to get me to do that, man. It's, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, well whatever I, the case. Let's let's. I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be our interview now with the Clay Cordy, mystery author, and uh, let's get going. This is Genre Talk. Want show updates? Follow us on Twitter at Genre Talk. We are here today with Clay Cordy who is a, uh, a Ghanaian mystery writer and a medical doctor. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. So the first thing I always ask our guests, and I'll ask you just like everybody else, is what do you geek out over? <laughs> uh, probably Netflix. That's one of my first geek outs. Yeah. And uh, practically all of the uh, streaming services, quite frankly. Um, I, am, yeah. I am a um, binger, I would say, definitely. Yeah, me too. So and there's lots of good mysteries on Netflix. 
Oh yeah, there's a good stuff. I'm I'm a, I'm a thriller and murder mystery kind of guy, obviously. But yeah, I like um, I like all that stuff, and I particularly enamored of the Scandinavian and um, European mysteries, especially Scandinavian. The, the Swedes, the Danes, and the Norwegians produce some really good thrillers and murder mysteries. Really good. Yeah, I've been getting into the British ones, and I haven't got to many of the Scandinavian yet, but I want to. I did see The Killing, which was based on a Scandinavian. Uh, mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. Yeah. But yeah, yeah UK really does some good it. ones, some some really good stuff as well. I have been reading the novels, though. I've been reading Swedish mystery novels. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> by Henning and Ericsson so far, but I'm going to read some more. But yeah, I got my mom hooked on her, too, because we have relatives in Sweden, so it was kind of Oh, there you go, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really funny getting um, all these really great murder mysteries out of areas of the world have, that have very few murders, like Sweden, Iceland. Um, oh, forget it. Iceland, probably a zero rate of murder, but they got some great murder ris- uh, mysteries. Um, right. Of mine, yeah, it's amazing. A friend of mine, I think it's uh, Ragnar Jonsson, I think is the last name, and he uh, writes um, a great series out of his um, hometown, which is small. And he he confesses that he doesn't even remember when there was a murder in his town. (laughs) (laughs) So he's making up a body count that doesn't exist. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's funny. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, you write Ghanaian mysteries, or, well, mystery setting Ghana, um, among other things, um, the Darko Mm -hmm. Dawson series. But... Let's talk a little bit about you first for context. Now, my understanding is you grew up in Ghana? Yeah, I grew up till I was about um, 18 years old. And um, at the time, I just started medical school. And at the same uh, period, there was a lot of uh, political unrest. At the time, it was a military regime in power. There were university closures, and the uh, economy was rock bottom. And in addition, to top it all off, I managed to get myself in trouble with the military regime, which uh, was either very, very brave or just plain old stupid. And (laughs) (laughs) that's a whole story in itself. Right. Um, And at the time, I think my mom's um, uh, black black American. She got married to my dad in New York, who was Ghanaian. But at the time, I think her mom, who was in New York, decided, hey, come on home, girl. And um, it seemed like the right time to pick up and leave. And so we did. And um, then I moved to the States and had to look for a new medical school. I was fortunate enough to get into Howard University College of Medicine in Washington, D.C. And uh, I graduated from there, uh, moved out west to do my residency at USC. Um, And I'm still here in Southern California in Pasadena. And what's your specialty? I do chronic wound care, which um, I usually have to explain a little bit about. It's wound care that relates to underlying diseases like diabetes, um, circulation problems, and so on. It's not like when you, you know, cut yourself with a knife or something. That's, that's just acute wound care. But mine is chronic wound care, basically wounds that don't heal. Would leprosy fall under that? Um, probably, yes. 
I haven't okay. seen any cases, but yes, it, it, it actually would, yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and then so you're a you're a, a medical doctor. You got your own practice, and yet you write mysteries in your copious spare time. I'm sure as a medical doctor, you have copious spare oh, time. Oh yes, lots and lots <laughs> of spare time. <laughs> <laughs> my my dad's a doctor, so I know. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, he's so, a general Yeah, you surgeon. can understand. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah this yeah. is a great tradition of. Um, mystery, particularly mystery writers, not only mystery, but uh, mystery writers uh, with uh, physicians like Robin Cook or Michael Crichton. Even Chekhov was a physician, and so was Arthur Conan Doyle, the inventor of the great Sherlock Holmes, of course. So there's a long tradition of that, um, all the way, 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 way back to you know, the the mid-century, 15th, 16th, 17th century, all the way up to the present. Right, yeah. And it's, so it's, what made you, what made you want to write, and what made you want to write mysteries? There, it, my, it, my home was full of books, both fiction and nonfiction. Both my mom and dad were university professors, and we lived on the campus of the University of Ghana. So it was an environment just full of books, and I latched on to the murder mysteries. Sherlock Holmes was one of my big favorites, and then I also read a number of children's mysteries by uh, children's authors. And I've always loved that particular genre. I started writing myself, you know, when I was eight or nine. I used to either handwrite or type them, type my stories one finger at a time. Right. <laughs> and y- yeah, yeah. And then I designed the jacket covers, and you know, I used to like to draw as well. So I designed design the jacket covers, staple everything together, and there you were. I had a book. Uh, I was ahead of my time because, of course, now they, they they call that self-publishing. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Very cool. Well, so I used to do the typewriter thing too, and I remember when we got the typewriter that could actually correct errors and go back and erase. That was really nice. important for the jack. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, were you at Lagone? Is that the University of Ghana you're talking about? They're in Lagone, Accra. Yes, absolutely correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, G-O-N, I, I, Lagone, right? Yeah. I went to Ghana um, five times, and uh, one of my, oh. my host was always a professor of biochemistry at Lagon. So I spent a lot of time oh, there over there. There we go. There we go. Yeah. When was the last time you were there? Well, it's been 2004. It's been way too long. I'm really trying to get some time together to go back because it's changed. Yeah, man, so you, you won't even believe how it changed. You, you, you'll be just flabbergasted. That's what my friends yeah. tell me. I mean, because yes. the oil has changed the infrastructure, and they've had money, and there's you know the whole economy's oh. gotten you know. Back then, I could travel for two weeks on two thousand dollars and live nice. And now you can't come close. <laughs> Good <I'm> luck. Sure. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the plate, the skyline is just. All you see is these cranes and these um, high-rise buildings. I keep looking at these buildings and saying, like, who who's actually occupying these buildings? It really is incredible how much building is going on. And uh, I don't know. It's it's, it's mind-blowing. And I'm not quite sure what the the actual basis of the, the development is, but there's a whole lot of building going on. I'll tell you, I was just there uh, last month, February, and it's it's it, the building never stops. Yeah. 
Well, one of the things um, that is interesting to me about the Darko Dawson series, and I guess we should tell a little bit about Darko first. He's a he's a criminal investigative division inspector based in Accra, and the, mm-hmm. the police system, as I understand it, is national, not like regional. Yes, that's right. Every um, every region, and there are ten regions in the country, and every region has um, a system of the divisional headquarter headquarters and then the, the the regional headquarters so there's always a commander in charge of the regional division and then the divi- um, and then the divisional headquarters and so the CID which is the criminal investigations department the headquarters in Accra usually have people farmed out to the different regions so there's always going to be a CID rep of some kind maybe it's going to be a sergeant or a chief inspector at each of these uh, divisions. And so that basically means that if you work for CID headquarters, you can expect to maybe be sent far off. And that's, that's what happens to Darko a lot. Sometimes it's against his whole family structure because he he is a family man, and the thing is that uh, very often he resents being sent out to some of the boondocks, I guess you could put it. And it's it's a hardship on the family, uh, both in my novels and in real life. It, CID is not very family-friendly. They don't um, subsidize you with a nice house somewhere. You're basically on your own. You go out there and you find somewhere to live. Supposedly, you're supposed to be reimbursed for expenses, but that never happens. So it's not it's not easy at all, and, and you'll see, get that sense when you read my novels. It's, it's not an easy job for a family man. No, absolutely. I, I do get that, and I, in fact, um, I see the... Um, uh, you've got a story that I've read all all the books, all the Darko books so far, and I really got into them because it, it took me back to Ghana, and it was so fun. Mm-hmm. And I, Definitely. I mean, I used to have this when I would get off the plane in in Katoka in in, in Ghana. I would there, mm-hmm. there was a familiar smell that just yes. everybody said they saw me energized because I loved Ghana so much, and I had so much fun there, and yes. really connected with people, and I taught creative writing and music and things and so I was involved with a lot of students and oh, you know right, and, right. and helping them helping them do the arts uh, yeah, training that yeah, they couldn't right. afford because they didn't have the family connections they couldn't get mm-hmm. so I did all this mm-hmm. and and so yeah. just going back to uh, in your books was like taking me back to Accra even though it was different yeah it was really kind of uh, you know interesting to me to, to to try to imagine some of the changes, but I really enjoyed the fact that not only did you have you know your you had stories in Accra, there are three books that are set in Accra, and then you go over to Secundi Tekarati, which I've never right. been to, which is yeah. now really a big oil center in the country, and it's over on the um, really on the what is it the west side of, of Ghana over, yes, over there on yes, the coast. Yes, at Cape and then, Point. And then yeah. you also went to Kumasi, which I have been to, and that's one yes. where his family actually kind of moved with him. For uh, right, sign, right. you know, which uh, you know, the family dynamic is a big part of the mystery, which I find really yeah. interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. So, what's a little bit about the family? Yes, well, Darko is married to uh, his beloved right, uh, wife Christine, who is she's a, a school teacher, 
and um, very smart and very beautiful. <laughs> sometimes Darko says, I, sometimes Darko wonders, how did I get such an amazing wife? Um, right. And she, she tends to, she gives him thoughts and ideas sometimes when he brings home some of these mysteries. He tries not to bring things home, but she sort of teases it out of him. And sometimes she gives little hints. She's never obtrusive or invasive about it, but she has thoughts which sometimes help him think differently about what particular case he has. So she's um, certainly a treasure to him and an asset. And with the exception of the last book, uh, which is called um, Death by His Grace, she usually was more in the background. In Death by His Grace, the murder hit really uh, close to home because her first cousin was murdered. So then she comes more into the, the plot of the book. And then um, his, only, his only biological child, Hosea, who we meet in the first book, he has a congenital heart disease, uh, wonderful little kid. We meet him, I think, at the age of five, and then over the course of the books, he gets, grows up to about 10 or 11 or so. And then they have one um, adopted kid, Sly, who Darko met in the second novel, Children of the Street. Basically, uh, one of the thousands of kids who uh, are homeless in Accra, he met up with him in the course of the mystery, and uh, he and Christine took him, Sly, under their wing, wing. and he's he's a different kind of boy, kind of streetwise, and... A little, a little cocky maybe, but, you know, basically a, a good soul. And we see him grow up as well over the course of uh, the books. Right, and he's not used to the structure, uh, and he's got a Muslim background, so there's a little bit yeah. of a difference. Christine is a, is, a, is a Christian involved in, uh, I believe it is a... Uh, 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 Protestant uh, evangelical. Uh, yes, evangelical. Kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you know, churches are everywhere in Ghana. I mean, when I went there, I, I went there technically as a missionary, but my mission was not to teach religion or evangelize. It was to bring in artists to do these training workshops. Yeah. And you know, we were based in Medina Denta at a little work, you oh, know, great, great. compound, yeah. and we would, all the students from all over Ghana would come in, and. So I got to see a lot of these different kinds of churches and some of the churches. And one of the things that is interesting about the the fifth book, I think, is the Death by Grace that you just mentioned, which yeah. came out last year, is uh, mm. it deals with and examines this religion and one of with the negative aspects of it. One of the things that happens in Ghana a lot, and it bothered me, and I had these conversations with church leaders, is you'll see the church leaders live in a lifestyle that is very rich, while oh, the people in their church are living a very poor lifestyle. And you wonder, how do you... How do you reconcile your beliefs with this? You know, that, how does that, you know, come into play? And I think the book asks some really interesting questions about that. And, of course, there's some twists and turns and different things yes. about it. Uh, it's actually yeah. the most brutal of the, of the murders so far. Um, I mean, yeah. it's, I, guess, I guess the children of the street is pretty brutal, too, with the people being twisted into pretzels and different things, too. But yeah. to me, it was the most brutal one uh, yet uh, because of the, the head being almost completely cut off and different things. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and, the thing, and the thing is, of course, because that book was structured differently and we actually got to know the, the murder victim before 
she was murdered, it it hit in the gut a, a little bit more, I think, because we actually because in most murders, what what happens is you you're basically starting with the murder or soon after the beginning of the book, and then the detective looks back and pieces together the the story of this um, person's life. But I decided to go a different route um, with the last book, and so I actually started with the person leading up to her murder and the circumstances that led up to it so that the reader, in fact, knows more about the victim than uh, and much before Darko ever comes to learn about her. And I, I just right. thought it was a, an interesting way to, to structure it this time. Well, it also was inspired by a personal story of a friend, right? Didn't, I got that impression yeah. from your... Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, she's a very um, good friend of mine that I met um, back in 2009, I believe it was, or 2010, when I was researching for Children of the Street. And she ran one of these refuge centers for homeless kids. Uh, during uh -huh. the day, they would come and um, take, take classes in uh, math and English, and then they, they'd go home uh, after that. Some of them did have homes, but the thing is they were out of school. So... She introduced me to a lot of these kids who had this kind of uh, itinerant life, and that's how um, I wrote uh, Children of the Street. And it was in the course of all of knowing her that this whole saga of her marriage to uh, a really uh, well-off, smart, uh, I think he's, um, what was he, like an MBA. In fact, he studied in the States yeah. for a while. And it looked like one of these marriages made in heaven you know, fairy tale marriage and all this. And then, you know, it became apparent that my dear friend was um, infertile. And it, oh, things just went downhill after that. The whole family disowned her, called her a witch, and oh, it was just a horrendous story. Uh, she did get divorced, and she's she's doing really well right now. But it was, it was very, very heartbreaking at the time. Well, interesting context for readers or, or listeners who, who are probably unfamiliar with the whole spiritual uh, reality of, of Ghanaian culture, which I, I'm very familiar with because I used to teach spirituality in Ghana and Christianity in Ghana on a master's level. That was part uh, of what I learned when I went there. Uh, there's a belief traditionally, and it, it, it carries over even into modern culture in Ghana, that everybody's part of the community, including the, the unborn and the dead. So there's very much a belief in spirits in Ghana. And so yeah. the concept of witches is, you know, if somebody is unable to, to it's, it's very much considered part of your responsibility to contribute to the culture by having children and perpetuate the species, so to speak, be, yeah. carry on your tribe. And so this is a very big part of what makes the central family life and all this in the culture. And it's also anything bad that happens is not just a crime against the individual people. It's against the, the, the larger group. Community, so often exactly. in, in the traditional tribes, everything was, that was dealt with that was a sin or a crime was dealt with by the tribal council, not just by individuals, you know, working it out or police. It was, you know, the whole community felt, you know, you have, you've yeah. sinned against the community. You've, you've done something that's alienated all of us. Right. So, the whole witch concept that he's talking about basically comes out of that. And the, the idea that, you know, here's this woman who can't have a child. Therefore she must have 
had like be a witch or have some kind of bad curse put on her or something yes. because it's unnatural and unnormal to be able to not give well. Correct, correct. And it sometimes ex- extends tragically to, you know, other, uh, I would say, in a way, victims. Because, for example, uh, children with autism or um, cerebral palsy. Um, Down syndrome, yes. Down syndrome. Many of those kids are called either devil children or it's a belief that, you know, the man might have done something wrong, but especially the woman is looked at as being the culprit. And it's it's such a, it's in fact, in the present book that I'm writing, um, which is called <laughs> Aptly the Dead American, <laughs> it's a new... That's a new one. Um, there is Darko? an artist. Uh, what's that? It's a Darko book? No, this is a standalone. It's introducing a new okay. um, protagonist, a woman, actually, um, okay. from, from, the previous, from the previous book, from uh, Death by His Grace. It's um, the, um, detect- the, the female detective who comes under uh, Darko. She strikes out on her own now as a, as a private investigator. Gotcha. And, um, yeah, and she's interested in uh, autism, and she, in fact, she goes to a center in Accra, which actually exists um, for autistic and you know cerebral palsy children, um, and it it sort of plays into the story as well. But yeah, it's so it's just tragic to see some of these children who have done absolutely nothing believed to be you know some sort of uh, manifestation of the evil spirits or a curse so it's it's really heartbreaking yeah yeah i have a friend who that's her job is she works with kids like that so i know it's really a a challenge it's kind of it, yeah. it's interesting uh the parallel because there's a certain parallel with um, Hosea, the uh, the son of Adarko yeah. and Christine, because the, Christine's mother, for example, wants to take him to a witch doctor <laughs> at one right. the treatment because right. she believes there's some kind of curse or something yep. involved. In. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. And and the thing, what's even more remarkable, I think, is that. You might believe that people educated up to college level or or even educated in the West might drop all these beliefs, but that's not necessarily the case. Many people go to both uh, traditional um, doctors, uh, to um, Western-type doctors and traditional practitioners. Um, They they do both things, sort of the physical side and the traditional side and the, the metaphysical side as well. Uh, so it's, it's something deeply rooted in the society. It's, it's it's not easily taken out of the society at all. Yeah, it's really it really pervades uh, all their thinking and everything. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of a, it, 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 that's what was interesting about it. It's being raised an evangelical Christian and being involved in ministry and having gone to seminary and all those kind of things. This is what I used to do. I don't do it anymore. But I am very you know I I, I had a certain concept a Western concept of, of the, another spiritual realm, but it wasn't really all that real until I started mm-hmm. doing prison ministry and until I went to Ghana because I experienced things in those two settings that were demonic activity or something like it on a level that there was no other explanation that mm-hmm. made me think. I mean, I had a guy put yeah. a curse on me in Ghana, you know, so <laughs> that was an interesting You never thing. know. <laughs> yeah, well, he was gay and in love with me. It was very strange. Anyway, it was this weird thing. 
but, but he, they put this, he gave me this necklace, and they're like, oh, that's a curse. You've got to get rid of it. And then they purified me in a deal and stuff. And I was so fascinated by it. I, I kind of, I think if I hadn't been in a different culture, I would have been like, oh, that's a bunch of crap. But yeah. over there, I was so fascinated to see what it all was. I just kind of went through the whole thing and kind of let it go. You know? <laughs> because it, to me, it was part of my research. It was very interesting. But, yeah, um, absolutely. But I saw it to them. I mean, it was it was it was like very dramatic. It wasn't it wasn't it was definitely not a joke at all. It would not have been. You know, luckily I was smart enough not to have that reaction because it would have not been received well. You know. Yeah, exactly. They were very concerned. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And I mean, if you ever get approached or if the the subject of something paranormal or uh metaphysical or spiritual is, is brought up sometimes as a, a westerner you might sort of think it's kind of a joke or or laugh it off but <laughs> they may be deadly serious, serious and the best thing is to be respectful to just nod or say yes in a, a neutral way and not pronounce judgment on it because that can actually bring on quite a bit of hostility, and so you do need to be well, careful. Well, and there is a dichotomy there, because one of the things I got, you know, it was interesting is, um, you know, I went to a number of times, and I spent a lot of time studying the culture, and my, my whole approach mm-hmm. to the thing was, don't teach them how to be a Westerner. Try to teach them the tools that they can apply in their own setting, and, and they do it the Ghanaian mm-hmm. way. Because I didn't yeah. want to be one of those missionary people that tried to make them my own image. That wasn't what I was there for. I was trying to help them right. do what they do well in their context. Right. And so I spent a lot of time studying Ghanaian history and different things. And I remember there was one yeah. time we ran into African-American tourists who were quite obnoxious. And it was at one of the slave castles. There are many preserved castles on the yeah. coast in Ghana, which yeah. um, date back to the slavery days. And I think it was either um, it was either Elmina or Cape Coast, but it doesn't really yeah. matter. We were at we were there, and the two big ones. The, yeah, yeah. You can see the the the, the dungeons where they put the slaves. You yeah. can see the fingernail scrapings in the wall. Yeah. You can see all this. It's just really, really, really powerful. But uh, these African Americans just... were there, and the African Americans kind of had the attitude of, you know. You know, hey, we're, we're in the motherland, we're home, we're kind of all here, and the Ghanaians got mad. And I, they didn't get a confrontation with them, but they said to me later, they said, you know, my people bought and sold your people. You are not you are not African. They're like, this guy here is more African than you. He, he knows our language and culture and how to shake hands. And You know, it was kind of an interesting – for me, it was shocking because, yeah. of course, I don't think that way. But at the same time, it was interesting to see kind of the whole – at, you know, they're very much. It's it's not the same mindset. They don't necessarily look at it the same way. You know, it's kind of the African reaction to the whole coming back to the motherland thing was a very fascinating. Dichotomy. Yes, so, yeah. There's, uh, and there are two things to say about that. One is that, um, and a lot of Americans, particularly in the 1970s, a lot of uh, Black Americans uh, went back to Ghana. There was this whole stream of uh, Black Americans going to. Ghana in the 1970s, and it was kind of like a like a homecoming. And I think many of them were shocked to be regarded by Ghanaians as number one foreigners, number two Americans, and then number three, the last, very last, is black. 
um, because when you're a foreigner, you're a foreigner, and so that that word Oburoni, which means technically white man, it, it just used as a blanket to indicate somebody who's coming from abroad. And the the color is less of an issue than the origin and the the culture to Ghanaian. So, first of all, they um, they they look at you as being an American rather than black. And then the, the second issue is that they're not uh, Ghanaians, and, and along the the west coast of Africa, are not as how should I put it, obsessed? I don't know if that's the right word, with slavery as we in America are. I mean, this is still, slavery is still a hot topic, as, as is the, the Holocaust. And, you know, we're reminded about the slavery issue many, many times in all kinds of literature from Toni Morrison on down. But in Ghana, this issue of slavery, it's like it's something oh, far away, long gone. I think there are probably a lot of young people who are not even aware of this whole slavery thing. It's just not, it's just not on their radar. And I think many yeah. Americans may find that shocking, but, you know, it's just not a thing over there. Just well, not I, got a the thing. I, got the, I got the impression that, you know, life over there is, is harder than it is for us in a lot of ways. They they yes. they live. There are people living with open sewers, basically living in a cardboard yes. box. There are people yes. dealing every day with piss and feces and different things in their regular environment, whether they're wealthy yes. or not. Dealing yes. with being possibility of being robbed or raped in your own home. There's all yes. kinds of levels of concerns that we don't have. So we can obsess over these kinds of issues a lot more freely. We have time and energy to put we into it. More concerns, but there are these issues. <laughs> We have time for it, yeah. Yeah, and they, I mean, that, uh, you, know. That, you know, I've kind of wondered if that was maybe why they were less concerned with it because they're they're living in the now. They've got enough to deal with in the now. They don't need to accept yeah, that. Absolutely. You know. It's you know it's a day day by day, day to day struggle of you know living, um, getting through the day, getting employment, um, you know, and and it's it's true that as westerners we do have a little bit more time to sit around and think about things that are not as um urgent um in in the now uh than yeah. than say you know you have over there in a weird way maybe that's why um there's another issue the 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 diaspora that is writing the African diaspora that that writes fiction, like here in, in the U.S. and in the U.K. In a way, we have time to make, you know, to make our fiction. I'm not saying there's no fiction coming out of West Africa. There is, particularly from Nigeria. But the the thing about it is that the diaspora writes fiction for the Western reader. In fact, so the, all this kind of this going back to the business of slavery and then also the issue of um, people, Africans in the U.S. suffering um, from uh, culture shock and so on, that those are actually written for for Western eyes. It's, it's very ir- ironic that a lot of the books that are written here in the States by Africans are not read in Africa. Interesting. 
Yeah. Interesting. I, we were talking earlier um, about Obrunny, uh, which is the term, again, that, that, that you get called if you're a foreigner. Uh, and yeah. it was funny. I, I was saying how I would like to go back and wear a T-shirt. I'm with Obrunny or, you know, something Obrunny <laughs> because just to acknowledge it, you know, just to acknowledge the joke because wherever yeah, you go, that's embrace it, man. Call it now, you know, <laughs> they call out Obrunny to you. And it was funny because Quay was telling me that they call him that, too. <laughs> they just know. They just know you're not from there. Yep, absolutely, absolutely, and, and uh, I mean, it, it has it. practical values too. Because you step you step into a, a taxi, or or um, well, the custom is to um, they have Uber there now. But any if you get an, an uh, a traditional taxi, the tradition is to bargain before you get in. And, you know, as soon as they see my face, they just add on, I don't know, 50% on the, the regular charge. You know, they just automatically they just put it on. And now that I'm, I'm savvy, you know, I can tell them, oh, oh so because I'm Obroni, you think you can just charge me like that. Huh? And then, they, you know, they laugh sheepishly. <laughs> but, you know, because I know, I, know I know the drill now. Uh, but, yeah, it has practical, practical value because they'll charge you a whole bunch of money if they know you're well, coming from somewhere else. The same thing happened in the market when I would go to the, the craft oh, yeah. market. Yep. I would actually go through. I learned because I bought a lot. Yeah. I learned to go through first with one of my Ghanaian friends and then identify what I wanted. And we would draw a little map and send somebody else in to get the stuff for us. And they would Absolutely. get an after it. That's and people, really some of the people who traveled with me got mad at me and said I'm taking advantage, but I said, no, I'm actually able to buy more stuff from more vendors if I do it this way than if I was doing it the other way. And they're still getting – they're not going to lose money. They're still making no, really good not. money. You they're know? Not. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, and because you're right. Because if you, what happens is sometimes you go to one, uh, say one stand where they have some of these crafts, and you buy a lot, and then you suddenly realize, you know what? I don't have a lot of money left to buy anything else. And right. so what happens is, you know, you spent a little bit too much on one vendor, whereas you would have liked to have gone to like say three or four and gotten a variety of stuff. So right. no, you're absolutely and it's right. Spread the wealth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. 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 By the way, I don't go to that craft play. I think you must be think of the art center down on High Street. I don't even go there anymore. <laughs> oh, do you? No, I don't. I, There's another place that I go to, which is less uh, commercial, and you can get much better prices there. Well, I, I'll I'll have to discover that when I go back. But I, I you know, I, I went to various places at various. Uh, along the way as I traveled, but that was the oh, main yeah. one that they took people to because it was easiest. But yeah, I right. I would often buy things on some of the roadside ones and other places where you could bargain more and 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 in some yeah, of the yeah. villages where you went. But yeah, I you know I always loved buying the the Ghanaian crafts and bringing them back as gifts and different things. Yeah, there's and a then, great place for masks. Um, as you get to Aburi, you probably went to Aburi a few times. Um, yeah. But there's yeah on the on the way up there on the right hand side there's a amazing place for just masks which have not been mass produced and which are actually made by the the people the the sellers themselves the vendors themselves in fact you can order one and they'll they'll make it you know they'll hew it from 
um, you know, a virgin piece of wood and polish it and everything. And so, yeah, I got a lot of stuff there. And, of course, it was priced uh, way, way better than down in Accra. How, how often do you go back? Well, it's one. It's about once a, once a year. Um, but I, this year, I've already been um, last month, and I'll need to go back in June, July. There's some other issues I have with some property over there uh, that me- means that I have to go back. But in general, it's once a year or twice a year. The only the exception was last year, 2017, when I actually didn't go at all. But the prior years have been usually once or twice a year for two between two and four. Two, two to five weeks in general each trip. Well, and you said something. I'm going to get Peter in here in a minute. I think he's been sitting listening because I'm the one who read the books and I know Ghana, but we'll get Peter in here in a minute. But I, 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 you said something about having been your car stolen or been robbed or been a crime victim or something. You had to deal with oh, that man. too, right? Yeah. You get an inside view of the whole system. Yes, absolutely. In fact, it, well, you know, it's 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 how you know they say um, you get lemons thrown at you, you make lemonade. In fact, the the sort of turmoil and trauma I had to go through dealing with the police over this uh, stolen vehicle, and actually the case is not over yet at all. But it was really insightful for me because before I had that kind of outside looking in experience. I did have, you know, I knew people in the Ghana Police Service. I have a good friend who, who, you know, takes me around, and I can sit in his office and watch things going on. But to be actually one of the victims, I really discovered sort of the, in, the inner workings of the place. And, in fact, it's, it proved very useful for the present book that I'm writing. And it also spurned the present um, plot of the book I'm writing. So although it was a really awful experience, I, I got to say that it sure taught me a lot. And um, so I am making lemonade after, <laughs> out of those, those lemons. But yeah, it it's, um, was quite an, quite an experience and very disillusioning as well because it sort of gave me a, a bitter feeling about being in Ghana at all. But um, definitely, definitely makes an inter- makes for an interesting uh, new new book. So there you go. Yeah, well, I think it probably gives you an interesting perspective on on policing in the U.S. compared to policing elsewhere too, which is probably mm-hmm. yes. insightful too. But anyway, yeah. Peter, do you have any questions for our guest? Yeah, Peter's been listening so patiently. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, uh, Brian and I have a kind of thing going. I'm soft spoken, and he's not. So usually. Uh, uh, Gotcha. To, to listen for a while and then chime in near the end. Uh, okay. <laughs> he actually teases me about me not being able to get a word in sometimes, don't you there, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I feel bad about it is what I really do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm soft-spoken and thoughtful, which is not necessarily, you know, the best combination of qualities or traits, but uh, uh, to, to, to be a host. Um but I, I try. I soldier on. And what you guys were talking about was really interesting. Um, and so I didn't want to rock the boat on that rhythm you had going, talking about Ghana and the different yeah. cultural yeah. Uh, manifestations. Um, mm-hmm. But but I actually, uh, you know, normally I try and, and bring things to a close by talking about music or that part of the process of, of writing, of, like, what you listen to. Uh, yeah. But now I'm really curious, like, how much uh, – uh, you know, Ghanaian and, and, and 
non-Western musical culture influences you in your writing uh, versus, you know, as well as the standard question, do you actually listen to music while you write or is your process different from that? I don't, well, you know, it's, 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 you know, that's actually an interesting question because, you know, if I listen to, it's very funny, if I listen to R&B <laughs> while I'm writing, uh, my, my writing gets more flowery and sentimental. So, <laughs> yes, and then when I go back and read it, it's like, what, what, you, what were you talking about? It's like, I'm getting all, you know, soppy and syrupy and descriptive and all these adjectives coming out. And so definitely has an influence, and I, I really have to be careful um, what I do listen to while while I'm writing because it can influence my my mood and R&B for me is the most um, influencing for me. I I can get very uh, romantic and soppy and <laughs> syrupy when I listen to R&B. So it's something I need to be careful about. Um, now if I live, listen to heavy metal, that probably would influence in me as well. So in general, not much in the way of listening to music. Um, but I have to say that music um Afri- African rhythms are very important in some ways because they there's something about the the about drumming in particular there's so much good drumming in uh, Ghana and other West African countries and and the way a combo of drummers produce these amazing rhythms that interact with each other and I I don't know enough about you know rhythm uh, two four time or two five or whatever it is to be well, able it's to poly- polyphonic is what it's called it's polyphonic oh, uh, this is right up the alley it's okay. the polyphonic rhythm where they build rhythms that actually have different time signatures on top of each other one on top of the other right go ahead right I'm sorry. I just want to and that yeah and and you know that's fascinating i think a couple of my books have featured um drumming and music in the background particularly at, at funerals and then also these gatherings they call derbers where you know the chief is present and all the elders and there's a lot of dancing but the, but the the drumming is so muscular and so riveting that sometimes you get into a trance like state i was in ghana um, some a few years ago, and some guys. It was very nice, nice of them. A friend of mine um, took me <laughs> right to the back of where all the arts and crafts were, and I met some uh, people from my father's um, ethnic group, the Ga. And they gave me like about four or five of them gave me a sort of um, impromptu show. Uh, with with their drumming and the way they did it with just starting with with one rhythm and then building on it and then all of them started going faster and faster and faster and it was it was just impossible to tear your eyes away from them just the way they were performing in such sync and just knowing what to do is just incredible. Just amazing. Well, their whole bodies get into it. That's what's so amazing to me. It's like it's yeah. not just 
clean with your hands or anything, but every, their whole body's into it. And that's the way yeah. it is reacting to it. You know, they're doing that, too. I was always saying that I wish I'd grown up a Ghanaian baby so I could sleep on airplanes and buses better. Because you see these women with a baby strapped on their back and they're yeah, dancing. Yeah. The and he's dead asleep, man. He's just right. rolling out. The kids asleep, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really something. <laughs> but they, they just feel that rhythm, and that rhythm is so part of who they are. Yeah, and you can just see the, the like you say the it's not just the drumming it's it's actually the the body movements with the drumming and it's just it's just a total immersion in the in the music and uh Peter if you ever can get something on YouTube or or something you probably will, will see exactly what we mean. Oh yeah, no, I love um, I love drumming drum circles. Uh, I used to listen to not only like tribal drumming, but uh, like the the Baikal uh, drummers who are uh, Siberian drummers who drum yeah. on a first like they actually use the, the ice to drum with uh, to test the part yeah. <laughs> industrial music banging on things. It's always rhythm has always been something that I've just loved. So mm-hmm. I'm right there with you. I was just kind of closing my eyes and thinking back on 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 some some actually burning man drum circles that i i got to witness so uh ah, interesting. you know uh yeah it's 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 it is amazing how that impacts us and and drives us forward um, you know i think music as a whole does that um but drumming in particular you're right something about it just kind of moves you and the thing is that many of their 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 drums are they have a it's not just the the percussive beat it's the um the 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 drum has a, a tone to it there's one that they put under the arm and forgive me i forget the exact name but it it has um strings attached to each end of the drum so as they they squeeze put pressure on on that under their arm it it raises the the tone uh, or drops the tone as they're they're drumming with um a stick on in the other hand on the other side so that yeah, you know yeah yes the talking drums are there's a male and a female that and they respond to each other and so it's it's a very it's a, it's a conversational action. So one is more bass, and the other one is more of a treble note, and they they respond to each other. It's really interesting. Yeah, I actually have one of those, and I learned how to play some. You, one of them you put under your arm, and you squeeze the strings to tighten the head or, yeah. or loosen the head as you play, um, and and that's part of it. But you can also pluck the strings to make different effects, and then there's also. Yeah. Um, so other kinds, there's various forms of that. It's fascinating. The, the, the musical instrument, the craftsmanship, is it, it's very fascinating. And it's one of the things I collect um, handmade instruments from around the world. And so I've, I've spent a lot of time with those. And I'm always amazed by what they can get out of the most interesting materials. You know? <laughs> yes, it's true. So, it's true. It's really amazing. Well... Let's see. So, he, in addition to Darko Dawson, I, I know you've written a couple of other books as well. What, what, what? Else, where can we find you online, and can we uh, read about your stuff and learn and learn? You know, find your books. Well, my website is uh, my name, Quay Corte, um, Um 
and then the the books are available there to to look at to read some of the the excerpts and um the comments and reviews and then you from there you could you can buy them from any all sources including uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, and then your in your local indie stores as well. You can buy them there, and um, they, most of the books also have the audio versions as well. So for those who like read uh, listening in the car, uh, th- those are those are available as well. The last uh, one. Death by His Grace, the reader is really good. Corey, I forget the last name, but he's excellent. He's really good. So, yeah, they, they're all there. And then, uh, yeah, you can always Google me, Quay Corte, K-W-E-I-Q-U-A-R-T-E-Y. And um, I'm I'm there. I also have a relative. <laughs> My niece, is um, his name is Ian Jones-Corte, so you might actually come up with him. He's an animator for... Um, the Cartoon Network, and uh, he's got a lot of Twitter followers, so you're, you're likely to run in, into him as well. He's a he's a very interesting guy himself. Very cool. Well, we well, but I thank you for taking time to chat with us. I've really uh, really become a big fan of your work, and it was fun to be able to talk to somebody that I have all this in common with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, I was really impressed by <laughs> your comments that showed you obviously had a, a good working knowledge of of Ghana. I mean, to have gone there five times—that's pretty impressive. Well, I, I I fell in love with the place and the people, and I I still to this day keep in touch on Facebook with a lot of Ghanaian students. And yeah. I, you know, like I said, I long to go back. I kind of want to go back and actually research a novel. I've been wanting to write a mystery novel there myself. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, but in, the, in a modern climate, I don't think I could write Ghanaian people as well. I'd probably have to have an American protagonist or something or a foreigner. But uh, yeah, that's another that's another way to do it too. Yeah. Well, because the cultural, the, a lot of people get upset when you uh, when you borrow somebody's culture and you're you're not of the culture. So I have to be careful and sensitive to that. So it can be. But tough, yeah, anyway, yeah. At, at some point I hope to do that. So I'm glad to have met somebody I can compare notes with as well. But thank Absolutely. you, uh, guys. Check out the books. You know, he's got five of them. Um, What's the first one called again? Remind me. First one is Wife of the Gods. Uh, second is Children of the Street. The third is Murder at Cape Three Points. Um, the fourth is Gold of Our Fathers. And then the fifth one that came out in August of 2017 is uh, Death by His Grace. Great. So check those out. I will tell you that if you like mysteries, they are fun reads. If you like going to another world, they're also fun because it's really a really, really immerse you in Ghanaian culture in a very uh, lively way. And I think it's really worth it worth your time. Yeah. And so, you don't, you know, it, it's, it, it won't cost you a couple thousand dollars. You just like, you know, $15 yeah. for the paperback and uh, you won't need to fly anywhere. <laughs> right. You can take a little trip. That's right. <laughs> Exactly. Okay. Well, thank, thanks again for being our guest. And thanks, uh, Brian. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it. This is Genre Talk. Get links and notes from today's show. Find us at genretalk.podbean.com. This is Genre Talk. Well, that was fun. That was a lot of fun, Brian. That was fun.
I, I, I had a great time because I was talking about stuff that I'm very passionate about and stuff that I am very much I was, a fan of. I was actually Googling like mad uh, to keep up with a lot of stuff that you guys were talking about uh, <laughs> in, in, the, in the background there, you know. Well, what was fun about it was that, you know, I spent years studying this and spending time over mm-hmm. there in Ghana and did all these trips. So I, and it was important to me, as I said, to not teach them to be an American, but to help them contextualize everything in their context. So I spent a lot of time learning their culture and their language and their setting and their history so that I would not impose my own self on them. So all Cultural this knowledge came man. handy. Yeah. And, and it was yeah, fun because right. I, I could give context to what he was saying. Yeah, yeah, it really, it, it was really cool. It was. It was a lot of fun. It, uh, reminds me, it reminded me of Enchantment uh, because that was when I started researching cultural assimilation, uh, like learning uh, about the Vikings and, uh, and their, their, their push into, um, uh, into Russia and how they were culturally assimilated instead of becoming conquerors. And I know that it's a really, like, <laughs> kind of random extreme to go from you being on mission there learning the culture, but that, that is actually what it reminds me of is, you know, the cultural assimilation of the push versus pull of, of trying to teach people your culture versus allowing uh, yourself to, to, to learn theirs. And it was just really cool to get to see that in action, well, yeah, and, and to get to see you guys talking about it. It's interesting to, to me to – one of the interesting parts of this interview for me was I'm talking to a guy who is – although he grew up in Ghana for the first 14 years of his life, very much an American. He lives like an yeah. American. He thinks like an American. He has the American mentality. So he gets the things I'm saying from my perspective, looking at Ghana as an outsider in a way that not – that as an African, African-American, so to speak, he gets it. And I get it. And so we can compare notes. And it's not – a lot of people who have not been there and not had that cultural understanding won't get all that. So he and I could talk kind of our own language. And it was fun to see that there was just this mutual connection that just happened between us going, yeah, 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 that was. That was. And that that to me – I know I gave you some guff. Uh, 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 during the show about uh, uh, about talking over me, but it really was, you know, not wanting to interrupt that uh, as much as, as, you know, wanting to get take an opportunity to tease you on air a little bit. Uh, <laughs> well, no, it's fine. I tease everybody, so it's not a big right. deal, but we, we always can use the humor in the show. I, you know, I, to, for me, it was just something, the subject I'm very passionate about, and I connected with somebody else who's yeah. passionate about yeah. it, and that was fun. And I, what he's doing well, as a writer... It's very interesting for our listeners, and I hope everybody enjoys it because and, he and is writing something unique. That that's exactly uh, you know what I'm thinking is that I really enjoyed making myself part of the audience for a large part of that interview, which means I think that the listeners are going to enjoy it too. At least I hope they do. You know, uh, uh, tell me if I'm off my rockers. If you're listening to my show, just shoot. If you're listening to to, to the show and you're like, I didn't enjoy it, shoot me a tweet, hop on my Twitter stream or whatever, and be like, Peter, you're crazy. Interrupt Brian more, and I totally will. That that's cool with you, right, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> 
Sure, why not? I do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> we are Genre Talk Podcast at Facebook.com and at Genre at Genre Talk on Twitter. Feel free to email us at genretalk at gmail.com if you have interest in being a fan guest or want to suggest something for the show, even a, a, a future guest. We hope you enjoy this episode, and we will see you next week with K.R. Richardson. Genre Talk is hosted by Brian Thomas Schmidt and Peter J. Wax. Theme music is Your Guess Why by DJ Manifesto. Produced and edited by Randy Strew for a Flame in the Dark studio. Special thanks to Rachel Buchanan. Genre Talk is copyright 2018 by Brian Thomas Schmidt and Peter J. Wax. Oh, 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 oh